have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah. And it's okay if you use your table of contents. No, no problem. The minor, the minor prophets are a bit tricky. A bit, bit tricky. If you, if you find yourself in the middle of Psalms, just kind of go to the right toward the New Testament. This week, the, the big story is going to touch down in the book of Jonah. And we're actually going to spend four weeks here in the book of Jonah because I think it's so relevant and it's such a fascinating story for us. So we're going to be in Jonah this week. We're going to look at Jonah chapter 1. We'll read the whole chapter together. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the marines were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone out, gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, you know us as your people. We are prone to run. When you tell us to go east, we want to go west. When you tell us to go north, we want to go south. When you place a calling on our lives, Lord, we're tempted to do anything but. And so I pray this morning that you would find in us hearts that are totally enveloped in your will and devoted to your providence and committed to your will. That we would be the people that deny ourselves and follow after you regardless of where that following takes us. I pray for perhaps that man or woman, that teenager that's here this morning that, that is on the run, that is running away from you, that is looking to anything and everything for joy and, and expression and experience other than you, that Father, this morning you would call them back to yourself, that you would save them and deliver them and bring them out of that rebellion that they may actually know what it's like to flourish and be satisfied and to live according to the call of, of their lives in the joy that comes through Christ and through Christ alone. 
We offer this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Mary Carpenter, she was the most eligible bachelorette in Hell, Maryland. She was smart and charming and charismatic and pretty and attractive. And all the guys, they wanted Maggie to be their woman. Well, finally, there was Mr. Wright that came along, and his name was Brian. And he was her total opposite. He, he really was her completion. She was spunky and spontaneous, and he was calm and level and, and prudent. And they had a courtship that culminated in an engagement, and as they moved to the wedding, everything seemed to be going just fine. And then on the wedding day, there, there is Brian standing at the altar waiting to receive his bride when what he finds is that she turns and runs the other way. Brian is so devastated that he actually begins to make, he makes a life commitment to celibacy and goes into the priesthood because he completely loses track of what reality is and where he ought to go. Maggie, for her sake, she ends up doing it four more times. Four more times she jilts men at the altar, leaving them. They're wondering what it is, that they, where they went wrong, or how they misjudged, or who she could be. Now, of course, what we're talking about here is the runaway bride. That you have this woman who is continually on, on uh, occasion after occasion finding mate after mate only to stand and jilt them at the altar, only to leave on the back of a motorcycle, on the back of a horse, or in the back of a FedEx truck. She's always looking for freedom. She's always looking to find herself. She's always looking for, for another opportunity that will be more satisfying to her, more enjoyable to her. And my goodness, that's us as the church, isn't it? We are called the bride of Christ. But it must be said that we are a runaway bride. That we are always on the run from our Savior, always pursuing a different kind of freedom, always pursuing a different flavor of joy, always pursuing a new experience that is likely apart from Him. But our Savior, He's in pursuit of us, isn't He? That He comes in pursuit of His bride. And in fact, that helps us get to the story of Jonah, that Jonah is a prophet, is on the run. And, but what we're going to see in Jonah is that as a prophet on the run, that the Lord himself is in pursuit of his people, and he's in pursuit of even, even these runaway prophets. That even though our story this morning finds Jonah in the belly of a giant fish, that what he finds in the belly of that giant fish is salvation, deliverance. And that's the case for us too. But in Jonah, what I think we begin to see here in chapter 1 is why it is that we run. Why it is that we run? We are prone to run as the bride of Christ. We are prone to run as the people of God. We are prone to run because running is as human as it gets, as we'll see later on in the sermon. And so Jonah helps us to understand why it is that we run. So that this morning, if you're on the run, you might find your way back. Or if this morning you're tempted to run, you might overcome that temptation by the help of the Spirit, by, by the call of the, the Word of God. First thing I want us to see this morning is that we run because we have conflicting interests. And I mean we have conflicting interests with the Lord. One of the first things that I like to establish in premarital counseling is I like to find out if, if the couple shares a common vision for their life. 
I, I want to know if they share a common worldview, a, a common direction, a common, uh, a, a common direction and vision that they have for their family and their marriage because there is no source of greater conflict in a marriage than when you have two people who are going in the opposite direction. Two people that are headed in, down different paths and have different visions. In fact, what happens is when you have two people headed in different directions, it pulls apart from the very beginning that which God has been weaving together. That's what we see with Jonah here. Is that Jonah has a different vision for his life than God has for his life. Jonah has a different perspective and view and direction that he desires to go than that which the Lord has for him to go. And so what we see in Jonah is that Jonah has conflicting interests, a conflicting vision with the Lord, that Jonah wants to go his own way. Jonah wants to go his own way. You can see this right out of the gate in verse 2. Verse 2 starts with this double imperative. You see two commands given side by side like a machine gun, like an automatic over-under shotgun, right? Arise, go. Arise, go. They're one time. Why would it do that? Well, it's, it's, saying, it's giving these two imperatives, these two commands side by side to show the urgency of the call. To show the immediacy with which Jonah is supposed to respond. That essentially what the Lord is saying to Jonah is, go yesterday. Go right now. Get up. Don't hesitate. Don't, don't think. Don't pray over it. Don't fast. Don't go to counselors. Arise. Go. Right now there is a mission that is in front of you. And it's also evident because you see where he calls him to go. He calls him to go to Nineveh. Now, uh, uh, Jonah is a prophet. Remember, we have two kingdoms, right? We have the southern kingdom, Judah. We have the northern kingdom, Israel. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he calls him to go to Nineveh, which is a great city of the Assyrian Empire, which is the great threat to uh, Israel and is soon to bring them in, according to the judgment of God, to bring them out into exile, right? The judgment of God is going to come to the people of God through the Assyrian Empire. And so Nineveh is this great city in Assyria, and it is northeast of, of Israel. But look at where Jonah goes. Jonah goes, and he goes to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is difficult. We think it's probably in Spain, but it's to the south, and it's to the east. And then notice what the writer says. This, is, this book is beautifully written. He says, he went down to Joppa. He went down. God's calling me north. I'm going south. He went down to go with them to Tarshish. In fact, if you go look at verse 5 in your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen, but it even says that he goes down into the belly of the ship, right? That in Jonah's life, God is calling him to go north. God is calling him to go east, but instead he goes west and he goes down, down, down. That what we're seeing in Jonah's life is this downward spiral, right? We're seeing him headed. It's, it's as though the writer is making sure that we know. And he tells us that he's to go to, to, to Nineveh and the sentence says that he seeks to, to flee the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah was a good enough theologian to know that some, some people think that what he's trying to do is just get outside the boundaries of Israel because he somehow, somehow believes that God is only reigning over Israel. And if he can just get outside the bounds of Israel, that he'll get out from under the, the rule of the Lord. But this, I think that's incoherent. After all, God has called him to go outside of the bounds of, of Israel to go to Nineveh, and that's not where he wanted to go, even showing that God is the God of all nations. God is the God of all peoples. That instead, what we see in his decision to go down to Joshua, to go down, 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 to, to flee from the presence of the Lord, is what he's doing is he's forsaking his call. He's abandoning his call. He's abandoning where the Lord would have him to go and what the Lord would have him to do. Now, we're prone to do that, aren't we? We're, we're prone to forsake the call of God 
that is on our life. And, and I want to call can be kind of nebulous. It can be kind of abstract, difficult for us to understand. So here's what I mean by call. Call is that Godward step that God has placed in your heart to take toward him. That's what I mean by that. Last week, we, we talked a lot about this, the, the, the general direction that God would have us to go. But we all know that there is an individual relationship with God. And there is an individual call from God. And there, Paul talks about this with Titus, that there is a, a call that the Lord has placed into his heart. But there is a, So there is an inward desire to go in a Godward direction that's not outside the bounds of Scripture. It's not just some dream that comes to you and that, that may contradict what God would have you to say in, according to the Spirit in His Word. But there is an intuition, a conscience, a conscious desire in your heart that you must go somewhere. Well, what are we prone to do? Anything but. In fact, we're prone to be just like Jonah. And when God tells us to go north, we go south. When God tells us to go east, we go west. When God tells us to go up, we go down, down, down. Think about this in your life. Think about what this looks like. To me, in my mind, I kind of have that picture of you're supposed to write the research paper, but you decide it's a good day to go and organize your closet. Like, I'll do anything but that, Lord. Anything but that. God calls us to adopt. And so what we think is, I'll go and I'll work in the nursery and I'll get that out of my system, right? God calls us to preach or to teach or to go and live as a missionary. And that is a burdensome call and it's a terrifying call. And we think of all the reasons why we can't do it. And so instead we we find ourselves in any way possible running toward Joppa, getting away from the call, trying to get it out of our system and excise it from our spirits. God calls us to go and to share the gospel with our friend and we begin to justify and think of all the reasons why why it's going to bring awkwardness. And so instead we just give the old friendly wave, doing anything but. God tells us to disciple our kids and pray with our kids, but we say, well, I'll just spend quality time with them and I'll go bowling instead. Why, why, why? Because we are allergic to other people setting our priorities for us. We're allergic to other people setting our priorities for us even when the other person is the Lord himself. That's what we see in Jonah. That Jonah wanted to go his own way because Jonah had his own priorities for his life. He had his own priorities for his life. There's a unique feature to the call that's on Jonah's life as a prophet that causes him to stand out from all of the other prophets. That looks different than all of the other prophets. It tells him to go, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, other prophets in the Old Testament, they speak judgments against other nations. It happens quite often. It's going to happen against Assyria. It's going to happen against Babylon. Like, it, it, it's... Not uncommon for, other, for the prophets of God to speak prophecies against other nations. But Jonah is unique in that God calls Jonah to leave Israel, go into the heart of the Assyrian Empire, stand before the Ninevites, and tell them eyeball to eyeball, face to face, man to man, the judgment of God is going to fall against you, and you must repent. This is unique to him. That he has to go actually on a missionary journey here in the Old Testament. Missions is in the Old Testament, I'll show you. A missionary journey in the Old Testament to stand toe-to-toe with the terrifying Ninevites. And because of the urgency of the, of the mission, he's able to take this unique feature and deduce that what God is calling him to do is to go and to do something unique. And that is to actually bring them to repentance. 
that Jonah begins to recognize that this is not a ministry of condemnation for the Ninevites. This is a ministry of mercy for the Ninevites. That God is actually coming to offer them through Jonah by coming face to face, eyeball to eyeball, to actually offer them a way to be reconciled with God, to be right with God, to avoid and avert the, the destruction that could come away from him. And he hates it. He hates it. Because this is completely counterintuitive to his whole worldview. The Assyrians, they're the threat. The the Assyrians and the Ninevites actually were incredibly brutal people. They would skin you alive. They would put you and and parade you through your own people as, as markers of their military prowess and power by showing brutal acts against the women of the place. And we saw with Naaman enslaving the people and their children. He hated them. And he was an Israelite. His worldview was one of, of separatism. It was, it was one in which he believed that they had a unique salvation from the Lord. And that the, the Gentiles, and certainly the Assyrians, they would experience God only through his judgment. That there is a prejudice in the heart of Nineveh toward the Assyrians that caused him to not want the Assyrians to know personally the mercy of God. Perhaps the best way for us to think about this is to go back to September 11th. 2001. September the 11th following that and watching those towers crumble and watching those heroic police officers and firemen running in the opposite direction and realizing that this was the result of radical Islam and Al-Qaeda. You remember what happened is thousands of courageous people went and signed up for the military services that they could go and defend our way of life, defend our value systems, defend our worldview. Many of you perhaps answered that call. Can you imagine in that moment As you're standing in the line to enlist into the service to go and to take down Al-Qaeda, if God there instead calls you to be a missionary to them, that God calls you to go and to love them, to live among them, to empathize with them, to show mercy to them, to show grace and kindness to them, wouldn't everything inside of you say, they didn't show grace to us, they didn't show grace to our children, they didn't show kindness to us, That vengeance must be exacted. Judgment must fall. They must know the the fire of the tongue of God rather than the mercy and grace of God. That would be our temptation, wouldn't it? That's That's where Jonah is. That's where Jonah is. That that where Jonah is, is he has a conflicting interest with the Lord in that he wants something different for the Ninevites than what God wants for the Ninevites. And because he wants something different for the Ninevites, he wants something different for himself. He wants a different call on his life because Jonah loved his worldview more than he loved the Lord. Jonah loved his worldview more than he loved the Lord. You know, there's a place for us to talk here for a second. It's okay that you don't love your calling. Do you know that? I I think, again, in this Western idea of living out our dreams and doing all the things, that we understand our calling to be something that we are necessarily going to love. That's not the case. In the Bible, Moses didn't love his calling. Jeremiah certainly didn't love his calling. Balaam certainly didn't love his calling. We could keep going on and on and on. Throughout the scripture, God calls men and women to do things that they do not love, that they do not want to do. In fact, that many of them dread. So we may not love our calling, but as the people of God, what we must do is we must love God so much that we go and do it anyway. That we may not love our calling, but we must love the Lord. And because we love the Lord, we say, your ways are better than my ways. I'm going to trust that your direction for my life is greater than my direction for my life. That your thoughts for my life are greater than my thoughts 
for my life. I wonder how many of us have forsaken God's call to go and to love our neighbor because we love our political systems and our worldview too much. I wonder how many of us have forsaken God's call that God would step in our hearts to go and to adopt because we love our our standard of living and our way of life just too much. I wonder how many of us have refused to honor our government or that harsh boss that domineers over us because we prefer to hate them instead. We prefer them to know justice. We prefer them to know vengeance. We don't want them to know mercy. So we run. We run away from the call of God on our hearts. We run away from the call of God on our lives, and we go in the opposite direction. We go north when he's called us south. This morning, are you running? Are you running? The next thing I want you to see about Jonah and why we run is that we have an identity crisis. We have an identity crisis. If you, if you watch The Runaway Bride, and it's, it's a mediocre movie. It's not great. I, you know, it, I'm, I'm, some of you have never even heard of that. That's because I was asked this morning if I colored my beard. Apparently, I'm getting older. So, yeah, right? That's not funny, is it? It's not funny. Tina, I do not color my beard. But if you watch The Runaway Bride, one of, the, one, of the telling, one of the telling scenes is that Ike, this New York journalist, has come down and he's going to do this story on her. And he goes and he begins to interview all of her, all of her different fiancés that she's jilted at the bride, including the current one that she's about to jilt at the, at the altar. And he goes and he asks them a series of questions. It always ends with the same question. How did she like her eggs? How did she like her eggs? And it's a strange question to ask, except what happens is over the course of five different or four different men, she begins to answer that she likes her eggs a different way, always the way her fiancé liked them. And so what's supposed to be evident to us as we watch is that she just becomes whoever she thinks they want her to be, that she has an identity crisis, that the reason that she keeps running The reason that she keeps jilting them at the altar, the reason she keeps going in an opposite direction is because she doesn't really understand who she is. And because she doesn't understand who she is, she goes the other way. And that is what we see with Jonah. With Jonah, we see a type of identity crisis. You can imagine Jonah is down there asleep in the bottom of the ship. And all of the mariners, they're getting kind of ticked off with him. They're getting ticked off with him. They're like, we're up here bailing water and throwing our luggage overseas, and you are down there sleeping like a Calvinist in the bottom of the boat. Like, what's the story on that, right? And so they go, and they wake him up, and they get everybody there in a circle, and they're going to cast lots, which is kind of like the way that we throw dice or whatever. And Proverbs 16 actually says that the Lord directs the way that all of the lots fall. But in the minds of these pagans, this is a form of divination, Right? And so he casts lots, but the Lord, because he directs all things, even the fall of a lot, identifies Jonah as the cause of this tempestuous storm that has come against them. And all of them, they got big questions, as you can imagine. Here they are. They've already lost all their stuff. They're on the verge of their ship breaking apart. In fact, the ship personifies itself and says, I'm breaking, I'm breaking, I'm breaking, in the story, if you could read it in the original Hebrew. And they come and they say, who are you? Listen to the questions that they ask him. They say, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And what kind of questions are these? These are identity questions, aren't they? Tell us who you are. Because maybe if we know who you are and what your heritage is and who your God is, we can figure out the, the situation that's happening in the midst of the storm. And perhaps maybe we can save ourselves and save our ship. 
And so what we learn about Jonah is that Jonah knew who he was. Jonah knew who he was. He was, he was clear on who he was. Listen to what he says. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. This is the covenant name. You'll see it in all caps in your Bible. Yahweh. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is really what they want to know. Who is the God that is responsible? And Jonah speaks with startling clarity. He says, I am a Hebrew. And as a Hebrew, I am in covenant with the God that is greater than all of your gods. I have a special and unique relationship as, the, as a child of God, as Israel's firstborn, uh, as, as God's firstborn, Israel. And because of that, I, I have a relationship with the God who is the God of the dry land and the God of the sea and the God of the storm too, you see. He knew exactly who he was, and that's why it's startling that though he knew who he was, he didn't live like it. He didn't live like it, did he? Look at what he says about himself. This is so bold to me, and and especially if we go against the backdrop of what all we just learned with Elijah and Elisha about the fear of the Lord. Look at what he says. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. I fear the Lord. Remember what we said that the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is a direction for your life. The fear of the Lord is an orientation of your life. It is to have the, the Lord and all of his callings and all of the responsibilities that he places upon us and all of the, all of the directions that he calls us is to have him at the center so that he is the decisive, uh, the decisive person that, in your life, the one who establishes all of the priorities and the directions and everything that you're going to do. And so here he is, and he says, I fear the Lord, except, except I'm living as though the Lord is powerless. I, I am one who lives in covenant with the Lord. And while he says, I am in covenant with the Lord, with a special relationship with the Lord, he is literally trampling the covenant. That what we see in Jonah's life is that he is not just forsaking his call, he is forsaking his very identity as a child of God. That here he is as God's son, and he is living as though he doesn't know God at all. Is that you? Are you God's son, God's daughter, knowing exactly who you are in Christ, knowing that by God's grace you have been adopted into his kingdom and part of his people, but yet you live, you live in conflict with your identity, in conflict with who you are. You know who you are, but you don't live like it. See, Jonah, he couldn't face it. He couldn't face it. That's why he leaves the first question blank. What is your occupation? What is your occupation? What's his occupation? He's a prophet of the Lord. What does the prophet of the Lord do? The prophet of the Lord holds the people of God accountable for their hypocrisy. The prophet of the Lord calls people to covenant faithfulness. They speak on behalf of the Lord that the people might not be deceived, that they might know where they ought to go and what they ought to do and who they ought to be. And yet here he is as the prophet of the Lord thinking, I'm just going to leave that blank on my application. I don't want you to know because to face it, to, to recognize himself as a prophet of the Lord is to have to face, look eyeball to eyeball with his own hypocrisy. And there's nothing we'll run faster from than that is there. That's why we'll bail on an accountable friendship in five seconds when we want to do something different. That's why many of us don't pray and teach our children the Bible. They know our hypocrisy, don't they? They know our hypocrisy. 
And if we sit down and talk with them about God, all we can think about is that in the back of their little minds, in the back of those teenage brains, they're thinking about all the ways that we keep coming up short, all the ways that we keep living and, and exclaiming our own hypocrisy by our temper and by our language and by our lifestyle and by our priorities. And so we just avoid it altogether. That's why many of us, that's why many of us, when we go into the deepest seasons of rebellion, the last place we want to come is into the community of faith, into the place where God's word is going to be proclaimed to us, in the midst of a place where we're going to sing songs of of rich theological heritage that are going to confront us with these big transcendent truths. Because the word of God, these transcendent truths about God, the, the, the presence of Christ himself will run from the cross, will run from his grace because it causes us to face our hypocrisy. We may know who we are, but we don't live like it. So we run. So we run the opposite direction. We go south when he tells us to go north. We'll do anything just to get to Joppa, just to try to escape so that we don't have to think. We'll go to Birmingham. We'll go to the lake. We'll turn on the NFL games. We'll try to just not deal with it so that we don't have to face it. This morning, are you running? Are you running? Are you going in the opposite direction and trying to not have to face the hypocrisy and the, and the identity crisis that is true in your life? Finally, what we see is the reason that we run is that we have a mistaken freedom. We have a mistaken freedom. You know, really, we can boil down the reason that we run and the reason that Jonah here runs to, to just one reason. Freedom. Freedom. That he ran for freedom. He wants to go where he wants to go. All of us want to live designer lives, don't we? We want to be able to pick and choose the features of our life that we prefer. Which means we want to be able to pick and choose our own value system. We want to be able to pick and choose the ethics that we enjoy and believe in. We want to pick and choose the parts of God's word that are, are natural and comfortable for us and be able to exclude those that, that confront us and are difficult for us. We want to pick and choose the teachings of Jesus so that we can love the parts that are about grace and dis like the parts that call us to faithfulness and and call us to account and call us to bear fruit. We want to have these designer lives where we can kind of construct our lives as the engineer of our own destiny. That's what Elijah wanted. And so we run. Just like Jonah, we run. We run because we are following in a rich heritage of running. See, what Jonah does is he ran for freedom because he ran like Adam ran. He ran like Adam ran. And again, we're going to, I think, here see just how brilliant the author of the book of Jonah is. And why, again, we need to have this big story idea of how all of these things fit together. Because this isn't just a story about Jonah, y'all. This is a story about Adam. This is a story about me. This is a story about you. And this is a story that needs Jesus. This is a story that needs Jesus. I want you to think about the parallels. You could literally take out Adam's name from Genesis chapter 3 and put in Jonah's name. And you could literally take out Jonah's name in Jonah chapter 1 and put in Adam's name, and all of it still makes sense. Do you remember what Adam does? When, when God comes and he gives him one instruction in the garden, one instruction, don't eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, well, what does Adam do? God tells him to go north. Adam goes south. He goes in literally the opposite direction that the Lord would have him to go almost immediately. And then how does does Adam respond? Adam responds by going and trying to sew together fig leaves that he might 
cover himself. What does Jonah do? Jonah goes down into the ship so that he can cover himself, so that he has some kind of cover from the wrath of God raging in all of these seas. It says that Jonah then went and he fled the presence of the Lord. What happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8? It says, and they heard the sound, this is Adam and Eve, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Do you see this connection? Do you see how clear it is? Not only that, Adam, as a result of his sin, all those that come after him, his sons, his daughters, all of us who are now born in Adam as natural, earthly creatures, are affected because of his sin. In the ship, who is affected most by Jonah's sin? It is the other mariners. God's wrath is coming against them because of Adam. Do you see the connection? And the author wants to make sure that we don't miss it. He wants to make sure that we don't miss it. So this is, this is amazing. Jonah chapter 1, verse 10, all the mariners gather together, and they go to, and they go to confront uh, Jonah. And do you see what they, the question they ask him? What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done to bring this against us? Did you know there's another place in Scripture where word for word, syllable for syllable, accent for accent, that question is asked exactly? Is God to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done? This is supposed to bring into our mind all the way back in the garden that this is what people do. This is the inclination of the heart of a human. The inclination of the natural heart of a human is to run away from God. And so here is God saying to Adam, those he created in the garden, and now to Jonah, who is a covenant child of his, Why would you be so deceived? Why would you be so deceived? How could you be so deceived? What did the serpent do in the garden? The serpent did in the garden the same thing that he does in Jonah chapter 1. He goes and he takes and he dangles death that is shaped like freedom. He dangles freedom as a carrot that if you will just chase after this carrot of freedom long enough, eventually you're going to plunge over the side of the cliff. Eventually you're going to chase after this carrot of freedom. And chasing after that carrot of freedom, you're going to find yourself destroyed. Destroyed. Let me tell you what this looks like. And, and I hope this morning, I am, it is beautiful to see the, the kids in here. And I hope that if you are young, if you are in your 20s or below, you'll just let someone that is a few steps ahead of you in life just, just speak some love and some kindness and some wisdom. I counsel with a lot of people. I'm getting my master's in, in counseling. And do you know who is one of the most common people to counsel? It's a young man or a young woman in their 30s who are trying to recover from the decisions they made in their freedom in the 20s who are trying to figure out how to overcome all of the scars and all of the fractured relationships and all of the bad and rebellious decisions that they made. That you get out of your parents' house and you go into the world or you go into the frat house for the first time, you get to decide exactly who you're going to be. And you take that freedom and it is a carrot that is dangling in front of you. And the enemy takes and he uses that even in the child of God to scar your conscience and scar your heart. So that you've got real issues to deal with. So many people spend their entire 30s trying to recover from their 20s. Oh, 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 what is this that you have done, God would say to us. How is it that you could be so deceived? You take young parents. This is how it looks for us. You have young parents and now we're in our 30s. Maybe we're in our our early 40s. And for the first time we can make real money. 
for, for the first time, you, you have an opportunity to really make income. And in your mind, finances equals freedom. That if I can just have enough finances, I can have freedom. And so in your mind, what you do is you take a break from your commitment to the church. And you take a break from your, your devotion to Jesus. And you take a break from your family orienting all of your priorities around the fear of the Lord. Because you're going to just go and make money for a while. You're going to pick up a second job. You're going to take the big promotion. You're going to work more hours. And then you're going to take all the, all the sports and all the things and all the opportunities. And you're going to train your children and how they can experience and know financial success and by knowing financial success they can know this dangling carrot of freedom and you always intend to come back you always intend to come back I know that you always intend to come back into the fellowship of the church you always intend to re-engage with Christ you always intend to bring your children back and raise them in the fear and the admonition. you always intend to come back but what happens is you end up spending a decade from about 16 to about 26 on trying to figure out how to overcome the warped values of your children on how to help them see what is happening in their life what is what is leading ultimately to their poor decisions and their bad judgments and it's because it's because we chased after the carrot over the clip, man. Empty nesters. Empty nesters. If there is anyone who feels free finally in here, maybe an amen. There's an empty nester. The kids are not in the house. The kids are not in the house. The kids are not tracking down with you down to the beach. Like it's just you. And you think, this is my chance. This is my chance. So I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to withdraw from my responsibilities. I'm going to withdraw from all the work that I've done. I'm going to withdraw from all of the commitments. And I'll come back. I'll come back in 15, 20 years. But right now, right now, I finally have the opportunity and the privilege to live. And what happens so often, why do empty nesters end up in counseling? Why do they end up in counseling? They feel lonely and without purpose. They feel lonely and without purpose. And so freedom, it was this carrot that was dangled in front of you and it looked so enticing. But here is the Lord saying, what is this that you have done? You are running in the footsteps of Adam. You are chasing after the footsteps of the serpent and you are buying into the deception, man. You are buying into the deception. That's what we see in Jonah and God, goodness gracious, that is exactly what we see in us, isn't it? See, Jonah, he ran like Adam, but he ran unlike Jesus. That's what we need to see. The picture is beautiful. The picture is beautiful. And if it wasn't so clear and evident in the Bible, you would think this was us just trying to imagine this is here. But it is so clear. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, what is the sea? The sea. The sea is that which rages in the judgment of God. That the sea is representative. And this is, think about it, this is how the, exactly how the mariners perceive it, isn't it? That this is some judgment from some God somewhere. We've got to figure out which God is angry with us. We've got to figure out which God is upset with us because if we can just satisfy his judgment, if we can just somehow make an offering of peace to him, then the raging seas will be stilled. And so what does Jonah say? Yeah, this, this sea is raging because of the judgment of God. And is raising, raging because of the judgment of God against me. And so the only way that you can have this, the, the judgment of God satisfied is by taking me and hurling me into the sea. And if you will take me and hurl me into the sea, it will, it will steal the judgment of God. And it will deliver you from his judgment. I want you to think about how different that is from Jesus. I want you to think about how different that is from Jesus. Jonah looks to the other mariners and he says, the judgment of God has come against you because of me. Jesus looks to those of us who deserve the judgment of God and he says, instead, the grace of God will fall on you 
because of me. Jonah says that if you want to have salvation, if you want to experience peace, you're going to have to save yourself. You're going to have to pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the seas might be stilled. Jesus says, no, I'll lay down my life for my bride. I'll lay down my life for my runaway bride because I'm in pursuit of her and I will lay down my life that she, that she might have life, that she might live a life that is abundant and free. Right? That is, the Bible tells us that Jesus, he came one time and he laid down his life to satisfy the judgment of God. And he's going to come a second time. And when he comes a second time, he's going to establish a new heaven. And he's going to establish a new earth. And he's going to establish a new Jerusalem. And in this vision that Christ gives to John, the apostle John in revelation of his second advent, is going to punctuate what he says ultimately. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And what, and what, and what? The sea was no more. In other words, the sea ceased from its raging. Because Jesus, Jesus on our behalf satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus, in pursuit of his runaway bride, goes and offers himself instead. This morning, are you running? Are you running? Are you running because you don't have to look your hypocrisy in the face? Are you running because you've lost sight of your priorities? Are you running because you love your worldview and your prejudices more than you love the Lord himself? Are you running trying to go anywhere and everywhere except where the Lord would have for you to go? If you are running this morning, if you are tempted to run this morning, if you are on the edge of running this morning, my goodness, church, turn around. Turn around. And when you turn around, what you're going to see is that there is a Savior who is in pursuit of of you who has left the 99 and is chasing down the one turn around and embrace Christ and receive his grace and know all the judgment against you all the wrath against you has been satisfied let's pray to the Lord together this morning thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons we would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 